Welcome to Brand Event. We are very proud to be welcoming back one of our most prolific guests, John Martin Fisher. And we're going to be talking about punishment and free will and moral responsibility. John, would you like to start with a thought experiment? I'd like to start with a famous thought experiment. My version of it comes from Kant. And many people find it obvious what to say about the example, but I'd like you to think about it. And we'll come back to it perhaps later in the interview. Let's say that we're on an island, a society on the, an island, and a particular individual, let's call him killer, has done something horrible. He's perhaps raped, tortured, and then killed 10 different people, let's suppose. And now the society, he's been apprehended, and now the society is disbanding. In one month, Everyone's going to go off the island. They'll go in their own ways. They won't be living in another community together. And the killer will still be on the island, but for whatever punishment we're going to give, if any. So the society will disband. He's raped, tortured, and killed 10 people. Now the question is, what should we do? We still have a month. And I should say that Kant basically was a retributivist, and he believed even if everyone's going to go their own direction, killer deserves to be harshly punished, perhaps even put to death. That's a separate question. I think that penalty we might separate from just very harsh treatment. I'm not sure exactly what it would be, given that the society is disbanding. But so I'd like you to think about what you think should be done if you were in the society what would be the appropriate or morally correct way of addressing killer's situation? So I take it that Kant was a deontologist, so he thought that we have certain duties and that there's certain things that are right or wrong in and of themselves. Um, but I'm a utilitarian, so the utilitarian is going to say, well, let's balance the outcomes in this case. So if we punish killer, we are causing harm to killer, but presumably the families of the victims of killer derive some satisfaction from this or some solace from this or some positive well-being. And so when we add up all of those persons, if we add up all of their positive utility, that outweighs the negative utility suffered by killer. And so we're a-okay. We punish killer. So the utilitarian is going to say, go right ahead. Would that be an accurate assessment of how the utilitarian would decide. I think so. I think in that way, the utilitarian and the deontologist might well be in agreement. So here's a couple of problems. Maybe we can tweak the case a bit that should make both sides feel uncomfortable. The one would be that the victims are all dead, that the survivors of the island are so traumatized by what killer's done that they really have scattered and they will never find out about the punishment that is inflicted upon killer. And let's assume that Killer can't leave the island, that maybe he's in love with the island and he intends to be the sort of sole remainder forever. So he will never have the ability to harm anyone else. So there's no special deterrence that can play a role. There's no general deterrence because there's no one else on the island who can learn the lesson about this is what happens if you do a bad thing. No solace will happen to any of the people who were on the island because they're never going to find out about it. So then the utilitarian has lost all the utility points. And when he's looking at the scales, he says, well, you shouldn't punish the guy because all you're going to do is have negative utility. He's going to suffer. You can even imagine in cases where killer says, look, I got it out of my system. This was just something that I was going through. I was a very angsty teenager and I'm never going to kill again. And we can verify it. No, no chance of any further harm occurring. And there are people who kind of do this. They kill their wives in a fit of, of blind rage. They're never going to do it again. It's just one of those things that happens and they got out their system. Utilitarian is going to have a hard time explaining why we ought to punish those people because you're not getting positive utility. The retributivist, on the other hand, says you deserve it. You did something horrible to other people, and that's why we should use your own maxim against you. You've said other people's rights don't matter, so we're going to say that your right to life can be taken away from you. Your right to liberty can be taken away from you. Now, here's where I think things get interesting for us is when we bring in the free will question. It seems to be the case that one of the reasons why we say you deserve it is because you were the author of your own actions. If you're not the author of your own actions, if you had no choice but to do that, there was no other thing you could have done but kill all those people, 
then we start to get uncomfortable with the idea that we should be punishing you in a backwards looking way. Yes, I have the intuition at least killer in this case deserves to be punished. I assume, well, everyone's left together except presumably one person who could exact the punishment or something like that, a little group, and then they'll leave right away. I still think he deserves it if he acted freely. And I don't believe, I've, in a previous discussion, we talked about the relevance of alternative possibilities or freedom to do otherwise to acting freely and morally and being morally responsible. I don't think you need alternatives, but I do think you need to act freely in a context where you, it's reasonable to expect you to know the implications or consequences of what you're doing and the moral valence of what you're doing. Okay. You don't actually have to know, but it's reasonable to expect that you do. In my view, in exercising your freedom, your capacity to act freely, you do deserve in a basic way to be treated harshly. And my intuition would be that that dessert claim is true. Now, we could further ask what ought to be done, all things considered. And separating those two questions is a part of my general framework for analyzing these cases. So it seems like the utilitarian can say, well, he deserves to be punished, but there's no utility associated with punishing him in this refined case that Mark is giving, that we're discussing. So, so everyone has already left the island. No one's going to know whether you punish him or not. Maybe you won't even know after a while. You take an amnesia pull or you die shortly afterwards. The question is, then should we punish him? The utilitarian can say he deserves it, but that's not a reason to punish him. Right. So, so we want reasons for action and dessert isn't one of them. What we look well, for when we talk about morality is purely consequences. Yeah, and that's a good point, and it's interesting. What I would say is probably the utilitarian would say in this version of the case where nobody else is around or nobody can follow, it's not being Zoom broadcast simultaneously or a recording is not being taken or records are not being kept and distributed. Utilitarians might well say, well, he deserves to be punished harshly, but all things considered, we ought not because there's no point to it in a forward-looking way. I would say dessert does give rise to a reason, but not necessarily an all-things-considered reason. So you might put it that way. And that's a general point, actually. It doesn't have anything to do specifically and uniquely to moral responsibility. We separate dessert from all-things-considered or entitlement. So one example, easy to grasp, I think, in the literature, Suppose there's an older gentleman who has a lot of money in his trust and he has two sons or two daughters, one of whom is upstanding, virtuous, works really hard, conscientious, and the other one is a real jerk, doesn't, is slothful, lazy, abuses alcohol and drugs and is a liar. But for some reason, the gentleman has put in his trust that all his resources, all his holdings after he dies should go to the second woman, the second daughter, the one who's very lazy and not conscientious. So we might say the conscientious one deserves the money from a moral point of view. She deserves it, but she's not legally entitled to it. All things considered, presumably the view should be that we ought to go by legal entitlement so we separate, and that's not the only case where we would separate dessert from entitlement or all things considered. And I would make the same point here. Now, I actually feel that if you go back to the original case I gave where there's a month left and everyone's still on the island, arguably at least the killer deserves harsh punishment, maybe the death penalty, but at least harsh penalties, punishment. And I would further say, all things considered, he ought to be punished. That's at least my intuitive view. So it is different, but it's not based on utility considerations. It's based on the idea that it's important to give the victims a voice, where even if the victims don't still exist, it's important to give their interests their due 
And it's important for the society to express our condemnation of what was done and to communicate our fidelity to certain values. So it's not exactly a forward-looking utilitarian kind of approach, but an expressive approach. So I've got a couple of thoughts about the expressive approach. It seems, depending on how we cash out this notion of a society, so the one is we can imagine, in other words, that village still persisted, that society existed where the crimes were committed, and they say, we were very closely related to the victims who were killed, so they were our, our friends and our lovers and our family, and we are expressing our condemnation for what you did to them. Then I can make sense of this expressive account. But once we've rem- dispersed the community and the community doesn't exist in any genuine sense, and they're never going to find out about it, it seems it's unclear to me that they can say, well, the act of punishment, you could imagine what happens is that a sailor arrives on the island, finds our Robinson Crusoe killer, who's in a confessional space and says, oh, by the way, this is what happened to everyone else on the island. And this guy feels like, well, my motivation is to give you what you deserve. But it wouldn't be clear that he's expressing anything on behalf of anyone. I also right. wonder about this thing you alluded to, which is that we could we could cash out the interests of the victims. It's a topic Jason and I have debated quite a lot, is whether your interest can survive your death, whether it makes sense to say that you have an interest in being avenged or in the killer being punished, receiving their just deserts when you are dead, whether your interest can survive you or not, whether they can be defeated by an act of mercy. When you say, well, I certainly wouldn't have forgiven this guy, and I'm quite aggrieved by the fact that the sailor decided to sail on. My interests, even though I'm dead, should persist, and this guy should be put to death or treated harshly. Yeah, first, I do agree that there's a difference between the one-month case and your case where society is already disbanded. And I think the dessert claim is still true, but it's not clear that the all things considered claim is true. Matter of fact, I don't think it is, but I would just leave it open. So your example is well taken that if Robinson Crusoe or some misguided or lost adventurer comes across this island, that adventurer would not be expressing anything on the community. So I agree, that's a very different kind of case. And I think when people think of Kant's example, they don't clearly distinguish between the two cases. I think it really does make a difference. Now, do interests survive death? Now, this would be a totally different program, but I do think interests do survive death. I think even a dead person can be harmed if their reputation is sullied after death or even their bodies are mutilated and so forth. I think interests can survive. But... I hope that the proper analysis of the cases we're talking about, the Desert Island Kantian examples, wouldn't require that. So I put it in a way that kind of does presuppose that interest persists after death. But I think the basic point is if you start with the victims and suppose there are a lot of someone who's raped and tortured, although not killed, that individual has a right, you could say, to speak up for themselves, to articulate how bad what was done to them was, and to condemn them. You did wrong, and it was this bad. Now, I would say that the killer in that kind of situation deserves harsh treatment, deserves to get that message in part because the victim deserves to send it. But intuitively, the killer, the offender or norm violator, deserves to get that message. And that would still be the case, even if the victims are gone. So in a sense, the society, I said, is speaking on behalf of the victim. But the key thing is they are targeting someone who deserves the message that can't be delivered anymore by the victim. So that's my view. It's expressive of the existing or remaining group's values, and it's saying that you, the offender, flouted those values. In a sense, you put yourself above someone else. You said your interests mattered more than your victim's interests, 
And now we're telling you that's not true. You did wrong. And what you did was this wrong. And we show them that by punishing them. And that I think should be a proper analysis, even if you're not, as it were, acting on behalf of the victim in the sense that you're respecting an interest of theirs. So I think the view is intuitive, and I think that it probably captures a lot of the reasons why we punish offenders generally in society. But what I worry about is how much of this is metaphor and how much of it is real. So what does it mean for the community to express something? It's a strange notion to me because the expression is often not even explicit. In the punishment, there is an expression that the act is unacceptable, but that's quite metaphorical and inferential. Also, I worry about the community expressing something as opposed to individuals. So think about the original wrong. The original wrong was committed against an individual by an individual. It just so happens it was committed multiple times against multiple individuals, but there's just individuals involved. And now suddenly we're no longer looking at this as an individual problem. It's a community problem. And then the community makes an expression, but the community was not wronged. Those individuals that were wronged are actually no longer around. The community was not involved. So it's weird for me to think that the community was wronged and that the community has any say at all. I can understand if you're looking forward that the community has a say. The community can say, well, we don't want to be harmed by this individual, so we want to remove them from our presence. But that seems quite different from punishing them. There's some ontological or metaphysical problems here that I'm struggling to grapple with. Yeah, good. Your question's fair and probing, and I'm not sure I have a great answer. What I would say, by the way, is if we know that the individual killer is now transform and now understands the wrongness, badness of what was done and has some sort of conversion, maybe a religious conversion, maybe another kind of, and we're completely convinced, though epistemically this would be quite a challenge, but we're completely convinced that they will never do it again. On certain views, like certain forward-looking views, consequentialist views perhaps, but certainly on the rehabilitative view, that's now influential. There would be no reason to keep this individual detained or to enact any kind of harsh treatment anymore. I mean, it's over. The person is now rehabilitated. And if that's, that's the point, if sequestering them while they're dangerous and rehabilitating them to the only points and there's no deserving involved, you should let them go. On my view, even if they have undergone this kind of conversion and you are confident that they will never do anything like this again or anything significantly bad, they still deserve to be punished. And in certain cases, it will be all things considered the right thing to do. So that highlights a real difference between a quasi-retributive or at least partially retributive view that gives an important role to desert on the one hand and a completely forward-looking view on the other. Now, very good point. Individuals have been wronged. Individuals have been harmed. But let me back off and say punishment takes place in all sorts of different contexts. And one is the family. A parent punishes a child sometimes. There are lots of different contexts in which we would say someone is being punished, and yet it's not a public thing. The individual has not wronged society. And there's no reason for society in general to speak. It might be that the parent has been wronged or a sibling has been wronged. Now, even if it's just a family and it's not a public matter, if, let's say, a young child has harmed his sibling, let's say his sister's birthday is today and there's a beautiful birthday cake on the dining room table and he goes ahead before the party and takes a bunch of it, He's harmed her. Now, even in a context like that, typically she would not exact any punishment. She could say, look, you've, you took my birthday cake. That was really painful for me. You hurt me this much. But it's the parent who has to actually say that on behalf of the child and has to apply the punishment. We, we think similarly with society in general. And the reason is, 
victims tend to be biased and not objective in the way in which they carry out punishments and the specific vehicles they choose and how severely to punish. And so we need some sort of mechanism whereby we can <clears throat> ensure or render more likely appropriate ways of punishment. So certain authoritative figures have to speak on behalf of victims. Now, you're right, though, that the whole model that I'm working with is, roughly speaking, a communicative or expressive or even more generally, a conversational model. Contemporary philosophers have been talking about expressive models for a long time. It goes back at least to Joel Feinberg in a brilliant article he wrote called The Expressive Function of Punishment, but I'm sure it goes back even further. But even more recently, Gary Watson wrote an important article many others have followed, including Michael McKenna, who's written a more elaborate version of it, a book, thinking of moral responsibility practices like conversation and kind of conceptualizing them in a way that makes them similar to conversations. And now, we're not saying if we adopt that kind of model, and we could go into more detail how the model works. It's just an analogy. And we're not saying that literally responsibility practices are conversation, but we're trying to say we can conceptualize and attach meaning to the interactions that take place, the real ontologically physical interactions in a context where someone has violated a norm or harmed someone else we can attach a certain meaning to that and to the response by the victim in such a way that it's parallel to or analogous to a conversation. And the idea is maybe we can learn from analogy. So I wonder about how we deal with harms where we don't have a moral agent as the perpetrator. So you can imagine a couple of cases, you've got to say a hurricane that whisks through a neighborhood and kills a bunch of people. And we say a horrible thing has happened. You can imagine a wild animal that's on the loose that eats some children. We can imagine, let's say, a killer robot that's programmed to kill a certain class of people. And the way that you deal with this problem is like how you try and quarantine a disease. So you might just take whatever efforts you can to contain it, to stop it, to prevent it from performing the harm. Once the being is no longer capable of performing a harm, so you can imagine that the, the wild tiger has now cracked its teeth, that the killer robot has exterminated all the people that it needs to in terms of its programming and I won't do anything and the hurricanes run out. We have a situation where there is no being who deserves anything because it wasn't doing any deliberation. There's no kind of utility in punishing it because, you know, it's not going to perform any future wrongs. Can we use this expressive account to say, well, nonetheless, our values have been violated. These beings did things that were harmful to us. And so we need to do something to express that. So should we nonetheless visit harmful sanctions on them? Right. I think not because the individuals in question didn't deserve to be punished or to have harsh treatment inflicted on them. They didn't deserve that because they didn't act freely, knowing the implications of what they were doing in a context where it's reasonable to expect them to understand the moral status or valence of what they're doing. And so, I mean, our moral responsibility practices, I believe, presuppose something like a control or freedom requirement. Now, it's not as though all conversations, simply in virtue of being conversations, entail all the features of the responsibility practices, but we can understand once we put in place those practices, which I would argue include some sort of free will component and knowledge component, and then we see the interactions, there's a harm or a perceived harm, then there's resentment or indignation, then there's an apology or a failure to make an apology. Once we see this, we can kind of understand it in terms of a conversation, but the conversation does not specify all the elements. 
But it's not clear to me why the conversation or the expression matters. So I can think of a few candidates for why it could matter, but none of them convince me. So the one is you're expressing a message to the killer, but why does that matter? Because the killer should be the person that we care about least in the situation. So communicating to them that they've done something wrong, I don't see why that matters. It doesn't seem to be important that they understand this because, well, we've deliberately said they're the least important element in this whole environment. I mean, maybe there's other elements. So maybe it's the victims, their interests that matter. But again, there, it's not clear that the victims had an interest in this killer being punished or this message being expressed to this killer. It seems like they had a lot of other interests in their lives that have been undermined, but it's not clear that they have this interest. Maybe a candidate is to say that we care about the moral community themselves or the judge or the families that they get to express to the killer that they've done something wrong. But it's not clear that the judge or or the victim's families have been wronged directly. And it's not clear that they have the right to express anything. It seems the victims have that right, but the victims can't express. So it's not entirely clear to me why expression matters. Good. Excellent question. And it invites me to say more. And so what I think of the conversation model is basically say a model in which someone deserves to make a, a conversational move that's a response to a conversation starter, you might say. Well, suppose the offender harms the victim. And we assign a certain meaning to the offender's action. It might be something like, my interests matter more than yours. I mean, I want to do this. I want that beautiful car that you have. And I really need it this weekend. And so I'm going to take it. And so my interests matter more than yours. Now, it seems to me to be an appropriate conversational response, one that the victim deserves to make to say, no, your interests don't matter more than mine. My interests matter just as much as you. What you did was wrong. Now, that seems to be reasonable. Now, an additional part of my view is it, come, it goes back to a view of Robert Nozick's, which I think is really interesting. Not a lot of people go back to his discussion of retribution and retributivism. He distinguishes re retribution from revenge, for instance, in an interesting way. But what he says is that punishment understood retributively, which is the way he thinks it ought to be, expresses the thought that what you did was this bad. What you did was this bet, where this, of course, is an indexical term. It points to something. Now, many philosophers think you can't reduce the contents of something pointed to by an indexical word to general propositional content that could be understood from a third-party point of view. I mean, we could try to say what you did was like what you feel when you sprain an ankle, whatever. You try to explain it propositionally, but what my claim is that in, in these contexts, the message that gets sent, the message that the victim deserves to send and that the perpetrator or offender deserves to get is one with content that's essentially indexable. The content is what you did was this bad. And if all that's right, it's not just the expression but the expression of something with a certain content, the message has to be given in this way. Going back to Marshall McLuhan's famous motto, the medium is the message. So here's just in a nutshell, oversimplified nutshell version of my argument. When an offense has taken place, the victim deserves to respond. When it's a significant offense, the message involves harsh treatment. What you did was this bad. It was wrong and it was this bad. So he deserves to get that message. The message involves harsh treatment. Therefore, he deserves harsh treatment. That's kind of a nutshell version. Now, it does involve, of course, either the victim or the state speaking on behalf of the victim 
deserving to send that message and therefore it's being appropriate to communicate or express that thought. But most importantly, it's an argument for a certain core retributivist idea. It's an argument for the claim that the offender deserves harshly. And what I think is nice then, the point of the conversational model then would be to add something to the intuition of dessert. So many of us have the intuition that in a context like this, the offender deserves harsh treatment. Other people don't share that intuition. Now, is it just going to be my view against yours? My invocation of this analogy is supposed to at least be a path forward. So I think part of what I'm trying to grapple with is the work that the conversation does. It seems that your account of it is that it's not a freestanding separate account that rivals dessert or consequences. It must be tied to dessert. So in your prior answer, you said, look, if the being that committed the harm doesn't deserve it, well, then the community doesn't get to send the message. It's the message it sends must be in relation to the dessert. So yeah. this brings us back to a kind of earlier part of the conversation where we talked about, well, if the claim is the reason why you don't punish the killer robot or the animals, they don't deserve it because they don't have our agency, the claim is going to be, well, none of us do. None of us are really free agents. We could not have done otherwise. Maybe you could have done some internal weighing. You could have deliberated. But if your prior history or your kind of coding was going to make you run the knife through the kid's head, well, then that's the way it is. And that's when people start to get uncomfortable with the sense of saying you deserve it. And that's why the move towards the quarantine account saying, no, no, look, everyone is basically a killer robot. There's no point in sending a message of these people deserve it. You could send a message for deterrence sake. That might be very useful and better for us to live in a society where we can corral the killer robots or curb the disease. But all this talk of people deserve it because they had free choices. Oh, well, that's just nonsense because there's no actual free will. Yeah, totally what many people say nowadays. It's a core idea or component of what they call moral responsibility skepticism skepticism about whether anyone is ever morally responsible in the sense that involves basic dessert. Now, what's basic dessert? It's dessert that just is based on what was done and done freely with an understanding of the moral valence of the action, something like that. But it's not in virtue of forward-looking considerations. It's just a backward-looking dessert-based view. And what many people are inclined to say is no one has basic dessert because no one acts freely and therefore punishment of the retributive sort or of the sort that is based solely on backward-looking considerations is never justified. And that's a view I've been at this game for long enough to remember we would dismiss that view as totally crazy as turning all our ordinary views of ourselves and our loved ones and the distinctions between ourselves and our pets and the distinction between punishment and mere conditioning or training, it would turn all of that upside down, topsy-turvy, and wreak havoc with it. And there's no justification to go there. But now, interestingly, the view has had a real resurgence or a, it's very influential and part of that is due to the excellent work of the philosopher Dirk Perabum, the Cornell philosopher, who's done very important work throughout his career on various aspects of free will and responsibility, also on Kant and on the relationship between the mind and brain. His views have influenced a number of people, and Greg Caruso is one. Greg recently had an interesting and lively debate with Daniel Dennett that's been published, a debate book on moral responsibility skepticism, where Dennett is defending a more traditional view, according to which sometimes at least we can be held responsible in the relevant sense, and Caruso's against it. But there are these really good philosophers who've been developing this view. But I agree, the core idea that they base it on is that no one is ever free in the relevant sense, therefore no one deserves harsh treatment. Now, I disagree right from the beginning. I believe that we can act freely in the natural world. And that is what grounds our moral responsibility. And so ultimately, it is a disagreement about some of the basic metaphysical arguments 
pro and con with respect to free will. One of the objections to the retributivist model doesn't go as far as saying that people are unable to act freely, but it says that they're nudged enough in the direction of their negative actions that we shouldn't blame them entirely for their actions and we should rather fix society rather than punish them. So at the moment, there's a fantastic television series about Jeffrey Dahmer on. And when Jeffrey Dahmer is caught, his father starts to think, well, am I to blame? Is his mother to blame? Are we to blame? Do we not raise him well? I left him when he was a child alone with his mother. His mother then left him. Is this abandonment? Is this the cause? And there's this very poignant scene where Jeffrey Dahmer's father says to him just after he's ruled guilty, he says, I want to tell you something. I realize now that I'm to blame for everything you did. Now, given that, let's just say he's right. And I'm not saying he is, but let's just say he's right. Then should you punish Jeffrey Dahmer? Or should you punish his father? Now, this very same debate, this is sort of a microcosm debate that has been applied in much bigger ways. So some people argue that there's systemic racism in society, there's systemic inequality, and that if black people who are affected by the systemic racism or systemic inequality commit a crime, it's not really their fault. It's the fault of society and it's society that should be fixed. We should fix the systemic racism or fix the systemic inequality and not punish the person who's committed the crime. It's a similar version of the argument. It doesn't go as far as saying that they didn't act freely, but it says that they're certainly not entirely to blame or perhaps only slightly to blame, if at all. Good. I think that is a component of many of the moral skeptics' views as well. Sometimes they do say because of upbringing and social asymmetries and injustices, People never act freely, but I think a version of that would be they may well act freely, but they, their blameworthiness or the degree of punishment should be mitigated or diminished. And so my view is clearly that our society is unjust. There is systemic racism, not just my society, but yours too, I suppose, and throughout the world. But I think what we should do about that is actually orthogonal to and certainly separate from what we hold to be the proper retributive practices. So I think one could be a strict retributivist, but still commit oneself to alleviating, ameliorating social injustice. And certainly one could be a retributivist, but hold that our carceral institutions, including our prisons, should be humane and should not be cruel and filthy the way, unfortunately, they tend to be. So I think they're different sets of issues. But my own view, first of all, is that people generally do have the capacity to actually, even when their formative circumstances and their social position are problematic and even significantly problematic. We see that because people who come from what appear to be similar backgrounds, similar social classes, similar families, don't always act the same. And you could say, well, there are subtle differences, but it's not really plausible to me to attribute everything to those kinds of differences. I think a great example is the terrible killer, Robert Harris, who killed a couple young boys at a fast food restaurant. This is now about 40, 50 years ago in California and he ate their burgers and he fantasized about going to their parents' house and dressing up as a police officer and telling them about killings in a cruel way. And he was a bad guy. Now, it turns out that his upbringing was incredibly horrible. His mother drank and he probably had fetal alcohol syndrome. His father was abusive and beat his mother and kicked her so that he was born a couple months premature. He was regularly beaten. I mean, it was just an extraordinarily cruel upbringing. And so he did horrible things, but he had this kind of upbringing. Now, one noteworthy thing is his sister, his siblings did not do anything nearly as bad. Now, they claim that Robert Harris's situation was even worse, but I think It's noteworthy that they didn't do anything like what he did. And there are other contexts where people emerge from broken families, abusive families where the parents have died early, 
from poverty. And they've done really well. They haven't acted out these horrible, tragic behaviors. So I do think people can act freely, even across a wide array of contexts. But I think, so I think Robert Harris deserved, he was put to death. California has the death penalty. He was put to death. And about 50 people actually witnessed his execution at San Quentin Prison. They waited for, I don't know, a decade or for a long time. They felt it was very important to achieve this kind of closure that justice be done. But what I would say is he deserved that, but all things considered, California should not have applied the death penalty. He should have got a much less harsh penalty and focus should have been on rehabilitation. So that is a case where I believe dessert and all things considered uh, will apart. Okay. So a simpler answer to your question is yes, social circumstances, upbringing really do affect what all things considered we ought to do to an offender. On the other hand, that doesn't necessarily affect the dessert part of it. And further, I am not someone who believes that the social circumstances and the upbringing are deterministically related to the choice and the action. Okay, I hope that's helpful. I want to defend this position a bit more. So the idea would be, they could or could respond to your objection and say, but even if you can act freely given your circumstances, so the siblings of this killer didn't grow up to be killers, even if it is possible to overcome those circumstances, it seems that's an enormous act of will. It seems like their siblings really had to work very hard to do so. Maybe they had to go into therapy and work very hard on themselves and do a lot of self-reflection and Maybe they had the same desires, but didn't give in to them. But it seems like we shouldn't punish the person who just gives in to their conditioning. We should reward those who don't. In other words, it's the equivalent of a supererogatory action versus an obligatory action. The supererogatory actor is going above and beyond the call of duty. The obligatory actor is just doing what he has to do. Maybe someone who overcomes their conditioning is, is not just acting freely, but they're acting in a very admirable or noble way if they come from horrendous circumstances and don't enact those circumstances in negative ways. So perhaps we shouldn't be punishing that killer. We should just have great admiration for their siblings who didn't turn out that way. I think we should have great admiration for anyone, including his siblings, who are able to rise above these horrible, formative circumstances and social niches that they find themselves in quite apart from their own control and their own efforts. It is praiseworthy. Now, with regard to Robert Harris and anyone who freely, although under a considerable amount of pressure from their background and so forth, do something bad, I do think they deserve harsh treatment when it's a significant crime or offense. And yet I totally agree that we should diminished blameworthiness, and I think it's kind of a spectrum as the circumstances, perhaps, of fetal alcohol syndrome and other kinds of horrible beating and abuse you take as a child and poverty. As these get worse, then we're going to diminish blameworthiness more significantly to the point where at some point on the spectrum, we might want to say no blameworthiness, no punishment. So what I would distinguish is responsibility and desert on the one hand from level of blameworthiness and degree of punishment. And I definitely agree with you with regard to the latter, but not with respect to the desert idea. So that's why I call myself a semi-retributivist. If you think of a retributivist view, it's basically people deserve to be punished proportionate to what they did. And that desert just in itself implies that all things considered, we ought to enact that money. I believe in the first part, but not the second, so I'm not a full retributivist. I think sometimes, in virtue of acting freely, people deserve some harsh treatment. But I don't think it follows from that, that all things considered, we ought to. That's where the other questions come in about rehabilitation and social circumstances and formative conditions. So semi-retributivism. 
So I want to try and explore this idea of an all things considered judgment. I like the notion that you can separate out whether you are guilty and what should happen from that. So there's a famous case of someone who was a doctor, his mother had terminal cancer, she was in enormous pain, and he put her to death in a kind of mercy killing way. And the South African courts said you are liable for murder and you are sentenced to the rising of the court, which means as soon as the court adjourned, he was free to go. So they wanted to send the signal that you have committed murder. It may be that someone else is going to get a, a, an actual sentence longer than that, but we are expressing some level of mercy to you given the circumstances that you're in. Mm-hmm. So as you say, there's a dessert question there about what does the person deserve. There are other questions to are you likely to commit the crime again? So here, there's no other mother to put to death, so there's no kind of risk. But I wonder how we sort of think about this. So one one notion is a limitation on retribution would be side constraints, where we say we don't rape rapists, we don't torture torturers. Maybe we think we don't have a death penalty because it's inhumane. Maybe we think ah, the justice system has some problems and you're going to execute some innocent people. Even people like Robert Harris, guy knows he did it, everyone knows he did it you might systemically not want to have a punishment like the death penalty. So I wonder how you see these, the sort of mix of ingredients and punishment going. Are there certain things that are on-off switches? Are there amplifiers mitigating and aggravating circumstances? What are the principles that are at play? And uh, how much of it is a case-by-case basis versus something that we can do abstractly? Good. That's a good question. I think the answer is, I don't have an algorithmic view. I don't have a consequentialist view, according to which you figure out what's good. It doesn't have to be just utility and we- or welfare or happiness, but what's good? Some mixture of dessert being meted out and rehabilitation and deterrence. If you figure that out and then you maximize it, or you then construct your, inst- your penal institutions and carceral or prison systems, You design it to maximize that thing that you think is intrinsically good. It's not that way for me. It's non-algorithmic. And I think it will, it's parallel to an intuitionistic view like W.D. Ross had where there were certain principles. I think there were seven in his case and they were defensible, acceptable moral principles, but the way you weigh them is not algorithmic. I think that's the way it's going to be. But I think... One thing that's important for me is that dessert is valuable and it's one of the things that a system has to embody. And I would think that for me to be attracted to some overall penal system, the goal of ensuring that someone gets what they deserve is important. Now, that can be outweighed by these other considerations, but there'll be a weighty battle of weight. So I don't know if I satisfactorily answered your question. This is one place where my semi-retributivism is quite vague, and I'd like to say more. I do think it applies as a direction for social institutions as well as particular cases. So there would probably be built into a system that's semi-retributivist a kind of discretion for judges to sentence, let's say, within a certain range. And then the judges, if they're semi-retributivists, would then, within that range, give some weight to dessert and some weight to the other. My own preference would be significant weight to dessert and nevertheless non-negligible weight to the others. It's a little disappointing. I wish I had a more algorithmic approach, but at least it's a direction to go. And I think it has the virtues of both but not the baggage. So it gives a kind of metaphysically minimalist and not obscure version of retributivism, the first part of it, that people basically deserve harsh treatment and virtue solely of what they've done. It's not that we're trying to balance the scales of justice. It's not that we think it's intrinsically good for a an offender to suffer. There are various other kind of models or metaphors or metaphysical slash normative views that putatively underlie retributivist thought. I'm not going to any of those. I invoke the idea of conversation and 
harsh treatment as a legitimate, intuitively legitimate conversational move. Okay, so I captured, which is important. I think most people think there's some residual intu in intuition that killer deserves harsh treatment, but I don't leave it at that. So I also try and take some of the virtues on board of a forward-looking skeptical approach. So I try and get both. The way I would put it is I want to have my dessert and eat it too, or have my dessert, but not too much, and eaten with a full meal. Now, unfortunately, when you try and have it all in life or in philosophy, sometimes the theory becomes so vague that it's not clear what the concrete implications are. So I admit that there's that limitation of my theory. So I worry about both the ingredients in this recipe, because the utilitarian is worried about both the dessert and the expressive elements. But I want to focus on the expressive element for a moment. A big part of that is that we are expressing our values through the action, through the punishment. Now, I worry then that you have a cultural relativist position, at least insofar as you're using the expressivism elements in your theory. So a lot of philosophers balk at cultural relativism. I think quite rightly, the idea that, well, an action's right just so insofar as our culture recommends it to be right and an action's wrong if our culture thinks it's wrong. I worry about, you've given a case where a killer has done something wrong. I think you're going to struggle more in cases where the person being punished actually hasn't done anything wrong, but our community punishes them and in so doing expresses their values. And it seems insofar as they do that, you're happy. But you probably would at the same time want to say that they don't deserve to be punished because objectively they haven't done something wrong. Now you've got these two ingredients in your recipe pulling in opposite directions. And I wonder how you're going to adjudicate cases like that. So suppose it's someone in the Middle East in Saudi Arabia. He's a gay man. He's had gay sex and now the community punishes him. You don't, I'm assuming, think he's done something worthy of punishment, but the community is expressing and they're doing so according to their values and they're doing all the things that the community is doing in the killer case in the right ways. So, so has something good or bad happened now? Good. I think you raise a number of excellent points. And one is actually that relative to a particular consensus. So I do adopt some kind of Rawlsian picture according to which groups or societies assemble their considered judgments or intuitions and then try and put them into equilibrium with each other and with general principles. And sometimes they adjust the principles, sometimes just the intuition. And you ideally get a homeostasis. It's a coherence model, though. And you remain, at least I remain silent. I think Rawls did about questions about moral realism and absolutism. They're trying to systematize our considered judgments. Now, he thought then you could derive these principles of justice that would reflect our consensus, but they wouldn't necessarily apply in other societies that have different starting points, different intuitions. And I, I remain silent about whether there are objective truths about morality. I think that even if there were, there would be the epistemic and coordination issues challenges as to figuring out what those objective values are and implementing them in laws and enforcement mechanisms. But I just want to remain silent and just say punishment is justified relative to social norms that are part of a reflective equilibrium. That's what I want to say. But I think that your question raises something that I haven't really thought about enough, and I should think about more as there are victimless crimes, arguably, or on the surface, victimless crimes. So what I've been talking about is the right of a victim to make a response in a conversation or an intuition that a certain kind of message is appropriate and permissible to deliver, and therefore the individual deserves to receive it. But now if there's a victimless crime, that kind of analysis doesn't work. Now, I don't know if you could do it indirectly and say, well, society has agreed to these laws and therefore 
society is the victim in a, a certain sense. But I agree that I have to think more about those kinds of cases. And also, well, your intuition, what would I say about the Saudi example, where our considered judgments are very d different from those of the society or the relevant group that's made those laws and adopted those norms? Again, I would have to say the punishment may well be justified relative to their reflective equilibrium, not relative to ours. I don't know if I could say anything better about it. I suppose, again, I've always thought you could be a normative, let's say, moral relativist and say the kinds of things John Rawls wants to say and that I want to say. It's not that anything goes, or that, but it, you have to systematize and put into homeostasis our reflective judgments. Then it, implicitly, at least, all our normative Specific normative judgments and policies will be relativized to that. Or alternatively, you could accept an objective kind of moral realism. There are objective truths according to which gay sex is not morally wrong objectively, and therefore the Saudi society is morally criticizable for enforcing norms that aren't true. The problem with the first approach is that you're not claiming to be latching on to objective truths, and that can seem to attenuate the justification of what you're doing. But then the problem with the second approach, the objective approach, is the epistemological one. Who gets to say which ones are the objective truths? And so you'll still have residual problems either ways. Pick your poison. I picked the poison of a certain kind of Rawlsian approach or coherence approach. I think what I like about Jason's question is that it teases out an ambiguity on dessert. So there's one sense in which we say you deserve to be punished because you have broken the universal moral norm. And on something like murder, people are going to agree. The other one is to say you deserve to be punished because you broke some of our rules. And those rules could be anything. So it could be to say, well, you're black and you sat on the whites only bench and our moral community got together and decided that's wrong. And we created a rule, which is that we get to put you in a dingy cell for the next couple of months. And that's why you deserve it because you broke the rule and we were expressing that conduct. One move you can make is to say, no, look, society only gets to express its disdain when you have actually committed a universal moral wrong. Otherwise it's expressing something else and that has no moral authority. The coherence problem is, to my mind, you can have a system which is totally internally coherent, but totally and utterly uh, morally bankrupt. So all of the rules make sense. They're just all sinister rules. And so this is one of the problems with something like Ronald Dawkins' account about law is you say, well, how does it cohere with the rest of the system? Well, you might then, once the system is so thoroughly pernicious and evil, and you try and reform it by putting in good laws, the good laws are the ones that are incoherent and they fall out. So... I suppose it depends on the Rawlsian account what binds those deliberators, whether there are certain kinds of universal considerations that people would come to through a sort of, let's say, what it would be like if I was on the other end of it sort of line and you might institute a bunch of rights because it would be in your interest to have those rights sitting behind a veil of ignorance, something like that. And that could get you somewhere in between a moral realism and a pragmatically good for you thing. And once you have those, you say, well, that's what constrains society's expression. It can only express things which accord with those principles, which are necessarily shaved off so they don't allow for expressions of, I'd say, really sinister beliefs by a society, and you can avoid some of Jason's relativist concerns. I agree. There is a distinction. Dessert that's based on objective moral facts, moral realism, you could say, and dessert that's based on relativized, coherent, frameworks, let's say, reflective equilibrium, two different ways of understanding dessert. And of course, there will be problems with each. The epistemic problem for the objective, if I say, you deserve to be treated harshly because you really did something wrong in the sense that it was objectively wrong, then you're going to say, wait a second, how can you justify that it was objectively wrong? And then there'll be disagreements in the society. But then if you do the relativist point, then again, someone might say, 
how you're justified in causing this pain and suffering or deprivation to me just based on this somewhat arbitrary relativist notion. There are going to be problems both ways. What I would say is that's a set of issues that is going to come up in various different areas of moral theory broadly construed. Some sort of coherence approach versus, as it were, a moral realist approach or objective approach. 